actually, I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome back to In the House and In the Senate, where we talk to the women of Australian politics about who they are, what they do, and why it matters. In the House and In the Senate is supported by Plan International Australia, the charity for girls' equality. As a leading humanitarian organisation working in 80 countries, Plan International Australia tackles poverty and supports communities through crisis. Plan work on some of the most important issues of our time, from gender equality, sexual and reproductive health rights, sexual harassment and action on the climate crisis. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken-Radburn. I'm a former federal and state political staffer passionate about making a positive change in our world. Let's get into today's episode. Senator Sue Lyons has been a Labor Senator for Western Australia since 2013. She has been Deputy President of the Senate since 2016. And before entering politics, she was the Assistant National Secretary of the Union United Voice. Thanks for joining me today, Sue. The question that I always kick off with is the day in the life of a senator. What's your day look like today? I think I've, I've, we've already had a chat before we started and it looks a little bit different to usual day. It certainly does. Um, so I'm in quarantine in Western Australia and I'm not at home. So I've had to um, rent an Airbnb. So it's not as if I can occupy myself when I run out of work to do with housework. Um, so I have actually, I mean, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and oh. I've participated in online discussions, which I normally wouldn't do because, the, you know, people want to meet face-to-face and all that sort of stuff. So it has given me time to, to, um, to listen and reflect. So that's kind of been good. Um, I'm doing a burpee challenge. Oh, good <laughs> on is, you. Which I'm on day four of day five of. And um, last time I was in quarantine, I ran around the house. I think I did about three Ks and I put it up on my story on Instagram and it got a lot of hits. So I brought that by pop, back by popular demand. Love so I've that. been up and down the drive and round and round the, the house today and it's doing quite well on Instagram. So there's a yeah. part of me that sort of, I, and I don't wish this upon Western Australia, but I could use just a fortnight of lockdown to get my fitness regime <laughs> back. I need some time to do some YouTube videos. Um, what does yes. what does a general day out when when you're not in isolation look like? So if I'm in the parliament, um, because I'm the deputy president of the Senate, I've got a lot of duties and a lot of committees that are linked to being the deputy president. So I do a lot of chamber duty and I chair what's called the committee stage of the of the parliament. Uh, if we're putting a bill through, this is where the Senate uh, really does act as a house of review and um, review that bill intensively. So that can be fiery sometimes. And, um, of course, as you would know, when um, visitors are allowed in the parliament, there's lots of groups that want to come and, and talk to you and and, um, and lobby you about 
particular things that they're keen to see enacted or they want the Labor Party or any political party's support on. Um, If I'm in the electorate, one of the things I've been doing is one of the things as a senator, because I'm the senator for Western Australia since lockdown, one of the really exciting things I've been doing, and this sounds like this just sounds so obvious, but I've actually been visiting all of the far-flung regions in WA and I've put on the record that I think I am the most travelled MP or senator of any, anyone and I'm not going to the typical places. So I've visited the central wheat belt for um, two or three times. I've been down to Esperance and the little towns in between. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's been really, really rewarding and meeting with groups that I wouldn't normally meet with. So I've met with farmers and farming organisations and lots of men's sheds and um, I always meet with First Nations groups when I'm out in the country. So that's been incredibly rewarding. And then the other thing which we've been doing for a while is um, the Labor Party held through its Status of Women Committee uh, a Status of Women's consultation a couple of years ago, which Sharon Clayton did. And what struck me about the consultations I was involved in in Western Australia was that First Nations women were largely missing. So I took it upon myself to do that consultation. And so um, we did a very big one in Perth with about 150 First Nations women come. And the overriding comment that was made to me from those women is, is that we don't really see one another unless there's a funeral, unless it's sorry business. And people were just overjoyed at being consulted. So we've taken that out across the state. We only go where we're invited um, and we set up a local subcommittee of First Nations women who determine what it is they want us to listen to. Um, Linda Burney is part of that consultation. Uh, Tanya's been part of it, as has Malandiri McCarthy. And um, it's just a fabulous opportunity. So just a couple of weeks ago, we were up in Carnarvon having a consultation there. And the thing that struck me was on the very first day, the women, within five minutes of being in the room, the women were asked how they felt at that particular time. And the number of women who said empowerment just blew me away. The fact that just coming into that room to sit down as a group of 60 women and talk about issues of concern to them was empowering from day one. So we're going to keep doing those um, and we produce a report, we present it to the Labor Party, we take it back to the women, ask them what they want to do with it, but we have managed to make some change um, to Labor's platform through those consultations. What sort of concerns are these women raising in these consultations? So they, um, it's usually about family. So the consultation up in Carnarvon was about um, their kids. Um, the loss of language comes mm-hmm. right through. Yep. Um, the loss of culture comes right through. They're probably the overriding concerns and they're getting back on country. So they are probably the three overriding concerns, country, culture and language uh, that comes through. And then um, the other um, negative that comes through is racism. It always comes up particularly in relation to any of the services that um, that First Nations women have to go and apply for or meet with. Um, racism's always an issue. Sue, so your 
your concentration on justice for First Nations people is something that was very clear from back in your maiden speech through your entire career in politics. Where does that where does that drive and advocacy come from? I think it, I do. I remember being um, probably about nine or ten in primary school and I had a friend called Mary and she was fostered and I didn't really understand what that meant um and she lived with a with a foster family now she was she was a young Aboriginal girl but honestly I never saw that I never saw that she had very dark skin compared to the family she lived in but through Mary I learnt about what was happening to her and that she didn't live with her parents, which for a kid growing up in the 60s, that was a very alien concept for to meet someone who wasn't with her family mm. and didn't really know much about her family. So I think um, I think I saw that as uh, one, sad, and two, not right. Um, I wouldn't say I saw it as a social justice issue, um, but I certainly, it didn't quite gel with me. And then my mother was a, a teacher and a deputy principal and she taught at a school in Queen's Park and um, the kids, as Sister Kate's as it was known there, that's the school they went to. So we used to go to the Sister Kate fates and stuff like that. So as a kid growing up, um, you know, in Gosnells, going to a public school, um, having that interaction with Sister Kate, so I probably was in a bit of, and having Mary as my friend, I was, probably was in a bit of a unique position in that I certainly knew about Aboriginal people and I met with them. And um, but although I, I did see that deficit model all the time and Sister Kate's was, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, but it was an institution where children were, were taken from their parents and place. So, yeah, I think I had probably early exposure. In your maiden speech, you described yourself as a troubled teenager and you said that your parents and your stepmother taught you resilience, compassion and to stand up for your beliefs. Can you tell me a bit more about those formative experiences and how you think that translated into an interest in politics? Uh, Yeah, sure. So um, I'll go back a bit earlier. I remember... Um, my mother always worked. She was, um, you know, which was unusual as a kid growing up to have a, a working mother. And she was a deputy principal at a school. So, um, there's no doubt that she would have struggled to hold that position and to maintain, um, that position within a primary school because at those times, women, once they had children, were expected to resign from the public service and so on. So mum would have, um, battled all of those battles. Um, and so we were brought up, my brother and I were brought up largely by my grandmother, who was, you know, a feisty Labor supporty, supporter, a Republican, like that, that was Nana. And, um, but I remember she used to give us our pocket money each week. And my brother always got more than me. And I oh. just saw this as an absolute injustice. <laughs> the and feminism begins. Say, Nana, why does, <laughs> exactly, you know, why does Bill get more than me? And she said, because he's a boy. And I just used to, I remember saying, that doesn't make any sense. And she said, yes, it does. It's just because he's a boy. So I think that was my earliest memory of sticking up for myself. And then I guess um, my parents 
my mum was very unhappy in the relationship with my dad. My dad was, you know, he was a kid sent out from Fairbridge at the age of 12, um, sent out from England uh, as a child migrant and didn't really have a good concept of father. I mean, he was a brilliant man. I loved him dearly, but he wasn't a good father. Mm. And um, he wanted to, you know, have lots of girlfriends and um, used to be out partying all the time. So there was a lot of disharmony at home, a lot of fighting, a lot of uh, unrest. And so dad left, or I think mum kicked him out probably when I was about 12. And um, she told us, she sat my brother and I down and told us that um, we were never to speak to my father again. And so we would see dad on the street and I wow. would just not speak to him because my mum my was a real disappointment disciplinarian she was a very authoritative figure in our family and um then I started going to high school and I guess wasn't getting I, I resented that the fact that my nana brought us up um and that my mum wasn't there my dad wasn't there so I started to really muck up at school um like I wagged school I got expelled I got in ran away from home um and so there were two guiding lights one was this police officer by the name of John was just really kind to me and um, he made me see things in a different light um, because I was the sort of kid and I'm still a bit this way, if if you hit me with a firm response, then I hit back. Yeah. Whereas if you're kind to me, I'm like, you know, I'm oh, your best friend. Relate. Um, so <laughs> yeah, oh. I'm still like that, giving away trade secrets about myself. And so I eventually... Um, I had a difficult relationship with my mum. She was, you know, I was not the sort of compliant daughter she wanted. And so I eventually left home at the age of 14, just climbed out the bedroom window and appeared at my dad's house and said, hi, I've come here to live on. So, um, and he was um, with another woman called Mary and Mary was kind and compassionate and really worked hard with me and so she really showed me that you know that you could still be tough but you could do it in a kind way and yeah and so I I really um credit Mary with a lot of the transformation that enabled me to get back on my feet because she was always there for me she never shut the door on me she never yelled at me she was always very accepting um so yeah so Mary probably turned my life around really. And so what was the next stage of your life in terms of you were a union organiser for many years? How did how did that path towards getting mm-hmm. involved in unionism and then later the Labor Party? How did how did that progress? Yeah. So I um because I bummed out of like as a kid in primary school, I I used to get into trouble. I was always one of the naughty kids, but I was smart and so I could read and write. And I really credit that with with keeping me at one level sort of hanging towards the straight and narrow. So because I bummed out at school, um, I decided, um, and I had my kids very young, so I had two kids by the time I was 21, um, I decided that I wanted to go back to school and get my year 12 certificate. So that's what I did. I went back as a day student, believe it or not, at Kelmscott wow. High School. 
and um, sat in a classroom with, you know, 16-year-olds. When you were, what, 21, 22? Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. you've got and, two kids. Yeah, and I had oh. a crash. And um, so my son went into the crash. My daughter was in year one, I think. And um, I did my ATAR. And, of course, you know what it's like. The unis come to schools in year 12. Mm-hmm. And, and so suddenly I was being offered, well, you, you could go to university. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, so, so that's what I did. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to uni and I was one of the last of the baby boomers to get a free education. And it was really there that I then turned my sort of naughtiness into sort of not radical actions, but I was part of the Stop the Dam, the Franklin. Um, I was very opposed to nuclear ships visiting, uranium mining, all of those issues of the day um, were things that I got involved in. And then in about my third year, now I, I thought I'd trained to be a teacher. And in about my third year, um, someone said to me, you should join the Labor Party. Um, you've got these Labor values. So, mm. oh, okay, so I did that. And um, and at about the same time, I remember doing some of my final pracs in schools and I loved I loved being with young kids and I loved teaching young kids, but I really didn't like the rigid bureaucracy around yeah. schools. And I remember <laughs> what was the catalyst to, for me to realise I couldn't be a teacher. Um, and this goes back to my issue of justice is um, – we were sitting in the staff room one day and, you know, teachers really look forward to their morning cup of tea or coffee. And the principal stood up and got a teacup and a spoon and tinkled it and demanded our attention. And I'm thinking, this is my break and you're trying to interrupt that. And I just decided then and there that I could not do this. I love that. And um, that's like that so, that same theme in your life of sort of authority coming down and being like, no, yeah, this isn't serving true. me. I'm out. No, <laughs> that's exactly right. I hadn't thought of it that way before. But no, you're right. And um, so I, and because I'd got involved in the Labor Party and I'd started to go to meetings and what have you, and what, you'll like this, one of the things that puzzled me about the Labor Party when I joined was didn't really know where decisions were made. Oh, I still don't, by the way. <laughs> okay, one one question that I want to answer on this podcast eventually is how do you get pre-selected? <laughs> and it, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can get to I'll that. We can get to that. But, yes, the, the, the mysteries of the Labor Party, decision-making, just not really sure how it happened. Yeah, Tell yeah, me about yeah. so that. I kept on. I kept on climbing up the ranks and I ended up, God knows how, I ended up on the administrative, on the um, state executive of the party. Which is like outsider. state executive for context to our listeners is like, you know, you're, you're now in the place where some decisions are made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and so it was there that I got to see how unions were part of the party. Yeah. And I really liked um this notion of unions. And so I applied for um, a job with the MISOs, as they were known then. And um, I didn't get the first job because Jim McGinty, who was our secretary at the time, described me as a bull in a china shop, which is a pretty apt description, really. And <laughs> so I didn't I didn't get the first job, but then the sisterhood got behind me, um, Helen Creed and a few of the others, and um, said, no, no, you have to, uh, Judith Watson, um, a few of the others, um, you have to employ this woman. And so I, I got a job and 
you know, there went my, you know, and my how, career how in the old, union. And how old would you have been then? Uh, probably about 27, 28. Okay, great. So you yeah. spend quite a lot of time as a union organiser and then in 2013 yeah. you're elevated to the Senate. Yeah. Tell me yeah. about that. How did that happen? <laughs> this is our pre-selection question, I guess. <laughs> it's true. So I had been, because I was um, part of a very powerful union, a large union in WA in terms of the party, I, I'd been offered spots before and it had been suggested to me that I ought run in the state or um, in the federal scene or, or whatever. But one of the things when you work with the union, you are very free to express your views on social issues, or certainly at um, United Workers Union you were and you still are. And so by then I was fairly seasoned in the Labor Party and, and I thought if I um, put my hand up to be an MP or a candidate that I would have to um, curtail mm-hmm. my views on certain social issues because I the other point about me is one I'm incredibly loyal and two I'm very much support the collective so yes. I didn't want to be part of something where I felt I couldn't make that make that commitment and so I kept on saying no and then I um, ended up being the National Assistant Secretary of the Union and I ended up in Sydney and this was when Rudd and Gillard were, um, when Labor was in government and I was lobbying, um, my responsibilities were to lobby the Labor government and the opposition and the Greens on issues around aged care workers and early childhood educators in terms of decent wages and so on. And so most parliamentary sittings I would be down in Canberra and it was in lobbying. This is a terrible thing to say publicly. I'm not sure I've no, said it. No, let's I do think, it. <laughs> I think I need to. In lobbying um, politicians, I thought, man, you're not very bright. I could do your job. Um, and I thought, wow, well, I'm more knowledgeable on this issue than you are. And I guess it was just me thinking politicians had to be across everything and every single issue, which, of course, is impossible. And so I started to think seriously about it about this role in politics, but I really didn't talk to anyone. It was just in my head. And then, of course, Chris Evans announces um, he's going to step down and that's broadly seen as a left United Workers Union position. And I thought, well, I could just go back to WA after making a life in Sydney and uh, and put my hand up for the seat now my partner at the time Rory he'd just been in hospital and he had a bowel operation he claims he was still under anesthetic but I I went in and saw him and I said to him Rory I really want to run for this (laughs) (laughs) and he's like I'm dosed up surely (laughs) which means we have to move back to WA and he went okay (laughs) so what a wonderful man he is so anyway I had a chat to Carolyn Smith who was so there was a transition going on at the union. Dave Kelly was the outgoing secretary. He was going in the state parliament and Carolyn was the incoming. And Carolyn and I are great mates. And I said to her, look, I don't want to ruin our friendship, but I'm interested. Um, just tell me straight. And so, yeah. Wow. You know, so then I and so was it, my name um, forward. Was it, uh, how do I put this, 
not too not too much love lost in the in you being put into that Senate position because a lot of the time we oh, see no, like just was... always love lost. <laughs> yeah, no bit of love lost. So there were other people who thought they had expectations right. about the seat, but um, yeah, I was the the number one candidate for a woman sitting. In well, a, a woman who has been involved in the Labor Party for many years now—I don't want to put a number yeah. on it—over over yeah. five years, maybe we've, we're coming yeah. up to ten. How do you? Is it really just about being around and having the conversations? I find I still find the pre-selection process quite opaque. Mm. Well, it can be. Um, I think I think the hardest, and this was even hard for me, and I consider myself an assertive woman, it was hard for me to say I want to do this. And I think as women we really struggle with that and it's one of the things I say to women all the time, no just, no but, no, I think I'm good. You have to actually say I want to do this. Um, so, so that was hard. Um, yeah, I th- I'm not sure I've answered the question properly. Um, you have to be prepared in politics to put your name forward because I say to women all the time, just uh, particularly in the federal sphere, when you um, go into that federal parliament and you sit in your party's caucus, there are lots of people who are smarter than you mm-hmm. or just as smart as you. So it's a, a very even pool and no one is going to, tap you on the shoulder I don't think and say gee Sue you've done a terrific job why don't you put your name forward for x y or z it just doesn't happen so one of the things that I do is I talk to young women all the time and particularly First Nations women about putting their names forward and getting involved Um, and secondly I say to young women if you if you think you're interested in politics join a party and have a look yes and you know, you do you do have to network and, and, yes, it's probably one of the areas, the few areas where you really do need to promote yourself, not to the point that people get a bit sick and tired of you, but you also need people who are willing to be your mentors who are going to speak on your behalf, who are going to say, oh, I think so-and-so is really good. Um, so that's, I think that's important. And, and the thing about the Labor Party I think, and I can only speak about the Labor Party, is, is we've got our own cultures and traditions and are not always easily understood. Yes. So in some ways you also have to wait your turn. Like I'm sure, yeah. you know, I think that's one thing most people would nod their heads about. There is this sense of who does he or she think they are. <laughs> um, so, you, yeah, there's a bit of waiting your turn. But I think now, particularly in Western Australia, because we've now got so many women in the state parliament um, and, you know, in the three marginal federal seats, we're running three women and we um, ran two women last time. We've now got a problem. We've now got this situation where we've probably got more women who are interested to run for us than we've got positions yeah. to put them. Yeah. So well, I, I just want to go back slightly to your comment about lobbying and feeling like, oh, 
I feel like I could do this job because that's a that's a sentiment that I've heard come up. It, Linda Burney shared that with me yeah. when she <laughs> she was sitting in these meetings with people and being like, yeah, yeah. you're just <laughs> without. And I don't think it, I think it's something that we should be able to say with our full chest because honestly, you probably were a lot more smarter and savvier than some of the people that you were briefing. Yeah. So what about, so, so you're all of these passions that we've sort of covered off and the change that you sought to make in parliament how do you feel like your the things that drew you towards politics have translated through your parliamentary experience do you feel like you've managed to make some of the change that you were seeking i think so i mean i think um I think broadly and specifically. So broadly, I think the Labor Party is, you know, probably 20 years ago. I mean, I remember Meredith Bergman making this point. When women wanted to run in marginal seats, we were seen as, oh, no, you can't run a woman in a marginal seat. Now, that's completely flipped now. And we now recognise and accept that if we want to win marginal seats, we have to run women. Now, we've got to run women in safe seats and uh, all of that, and, um, and and our rules in WA provide for that. But um, so there's that. We've got more women in the Labor Party, which changes the culture of the party. Um, we've got, I'm immensely, I, I listened to Linda's uh, podcast. I was, a, I was really amazed at the parallels between her experiences and mine. Um, having Linda and Malandiri and Patrick Dodson makes such a difference in our caucus. It really does. We are much more able to... Um, pursue First Nations issues in a way that we weren't able to do before when when it was when we didn't have as many First Nations people. So I think that makes a difference, as does diversity. I mean, the WA Parliament now, particularly in the Upper House, we've got the first Sudanese woman. We've got Pierre Yang, who's Chinese. We've got, you know, a whole range of um, MPs who are from diverse backgrounds. That, that makes a difference. But I think... Um, so specifically for me personally, one of the things I'm very proud of is uh, I was very opposed to Labor's support for the cashless debit card, very opposed. And um, along with Patrick Dodson and Linda and Malandiri and, and some of the other, as Jenny McAllister, we've worked really hard to turn that around and, and we have. I mean, we, that, that policy got changed a couple of years ago. So you've got to stay in there and fight um, and and keep being prepared to live to fight another day. And I think what what the trade union movement teaches you is that you won't win on every issue, but you have to get back up the next day and fight. And so I think that's what I take um, into the Labor Party is that um, we're pretty good on most social issues, but there's still some social issues that we need to be better on. Um, and so that for me is a personal um, a personal struggle that I've been part of and that we've changed Labor Party policy on that. If there was one thing in the rest of your parliamentary career that you could impact, what what would you leave Parliament feeling really proud of? Mm. Well, I think, first of all, again, in that broad context, we have to win government. I can mm. see I remember with John Howard and we were all very worried. We got to a point where he was fundamentally changing the country. 
you know, tax on Medicare, a tax on social security system, the absolute stubborn refusal to apologise to the First Nations people. There were a number of key tenets, key principles that he was um, not prepared to move on. And you can see that with Morrison. I mean, we now have a parliament where no one believes there's any integrity. Um, there's no transparency. Uh, lying has become part of the culture. And then there's all the damage that's being done through um, their attacking of social security policy, their backdoor attacking of Medicare and so on and so forth. So I would want to be, my proudest moment would be to be part of um, an Albanese Labor government next year. That that would be um, a personal achievement. And I'm also hopeful that if we do win government, I can become the president of the Senate. That would be an enormous um, an enormous privilege and an enormous honour. Um, and I think in that role, I would want to look at how we change the culture to make it um, a gender-neutral environment. And if that's possible, I think that's what I would like to see, a, a kind of parliament. That doesn't mean that we're not uh, don't have fierce arguments. I'm all I love a fierce argument, um, it, but um, but it does need to be um, a gender neutral place. Um, so I think that that would be a good thing to leave behind. So that was really where my next question was going because it would be a really big oversight from me if I didn't talk to you about the the sort of stories of this toxic culture of Parliament House mm. that have just flooded our media cycle this year. Um, tell me about, and I like that you use the word kindness and creating a kinder place. What does that look like for you in Parliament? You know, I haven't really given it much thought before um, Miss Brittany Higgins came out with the allegations but because in my office, I'm well known for employing women. That's what I do in my office. It's my little, I can, I can make this difference in my office yeah. by only employing women. And that's, that's what I do. And I particularly employ young women and I, I strive to employ women from, from diverse backgrounds because there's so many blokes in parliament. So that's my little, Sue Lyons can do this tick. But after uh, Brittany Higgins came out with those allegations, I remember standing in Aussies in the coffee shop one day and I was absolutely struck. And it, honest to God, Alicia, it never struck me before. But there were blokes everywhere. And then I started to reflect there's blokes who are lobbyists, there's blokes who are staffers, there's blokes in the media. I mean, if you look at the contingent that went to um, Glasgow from Australia, from the Australian media, I don't think there was a – I think Lani Scar was the only woman. I, I'm Prepared to stand corrected on that, but I think that's correct. So there's just this sea of blokes. So there's a very blokish culture. And so I think what we've got to see is more women in the parliament, um, both uh, as, as MPs and senators, but also as staffers in the media, in bureaucracies. Um, that makes a difference. And I think we've got to actually call out poor behaviour. And one of the things that struck me recently is, in the series that Annabelle Crabb did on the ABC, um, misunderstood, was both Penny, I think, and Tanya and Julia reflected on the fact that they hadn't called out behaviour and you would have been there towards some of the end of that. Um, so I've made this personal commitment that 
I'm going to call it out because you still see it. And, um, you know, I mean, I get called a quota girl, but worse than that, so does Penny. Like who would call Penny Wong a quota girl? But but it's that it's that sort of calling out. So if we can change that culture, a culture in which um, women are respected and um, and not harassed in the workplace, um, that's much harder to do than put some rules in a place because uh, as in my role as Deputy President, I sit on some um, committees that look at um, how we staff Parliament House and so on. And one of the suggestions has been put forward that we track staff um, through the electronic pass system and that we have these wardens established that are there if, if you have a problem. And I just sat in the room and got really angry and I went, but what about the behaviour of MPs? When are we going to call that out? Because that's where it starts and stops. You know, I've I've said publicly, why do we have alcohol in the parliament? Mm. Why are people drinking um, on the job? Now, that's all very well for me to say because I don't drink alcohol. But a couple of months ago when one of my young staffers came to Canberra, and um, Barnaby had just won the Nationals leadership again and there was much celebration amongst the, the uh, Nationals and significant numbers of them were drunk. There's no question about mm. that. And the one who copped it in the media was Sam at Mum, but she wasn't the only one. Yeah. And Sophia was absolutely shocked that um, that you could drink in the parliament. And I think we've all become certainly me as someone who's been there a while have just become kind of immune to this so I think seeing it through Sophia's eyes reinforces to me yeah it isn't appropriate so there's those changes like if we're going to put in place further tracking of staff which I don't agree with but if, if we were then it can't be the only thing we do we have to challenge and call out the poor behavior of men it feels very, the alcohol thing feels very like trying to reminisce about National Union of Students conference days. Like that's <laughs> how it feels like to me. And I really yeah. like, I really like your personal stance of hiring female staff because, and, and what you say about this sea of men, because one thing I noticed it when I was working in parliament was there was this real gap between maybe like junior to mid between junior staff and senior staff, you uh-huh. sort of you would travel slightly up to the midsection of seniority, and then suddenly there's no women. And I think uh-huh. you can see that reflected in many industries, lobbying being one yep. of them. Uh, so I think that, that those are all you've really ca- you just encapsulated it really well. Um, so my last question to my guests is, and you've already done such a good job of it when we were speaking about pre-selections because one of the things that I push uh, on this podcast is really consider joining a party because I'm a pragmatist and I think that if you hmm. really want to be involved in politics in Australia, we do have a two-party system and I really think that people should be investigating their values and you know it might be the Greens it might be a minor party and I would encourage people to join Mm. whatever they're passionate about but take that step and get involved what's another piece of advice or wisdom that you would have to bestow upon young women um could I just make another comment one of the things I listened to Dania's um, podcast yesterday 
And what I was really struck about was um, the way she described um, why she joined the Liberal Party. Like she was a senior staffer. So she said, and I'll, you know, I won't say it as eloquently as she did, but basically the Liberal Party was her future. It was her income mm-hmm. and it was also representing her very personal passions and beliefs. So for that sexual harassment to happen to her, to be ignored by um, people who were in a position to do something about it, didn't just destroy her income stream, but it destroyed everything she held dear. Her identity. So, yeah, exactly, her identity and who she was and what she believed in and how she saw her future. So I think um, one of the programs, um, and you and you could speak to Jess uh, short about yeah. this, is the She Runs programs. So it's a nonpartisan political uh, group that exposes young women to um, politicians from all parties and so on. So I think that's good, exposing women there. But I think we have to make sure that parties are safe places for young women and young men and that we don't destroy them in the process because that's, mm-hmm. in effect, what happened to Dani. Whatever aspiration she's... Now, look, she might come back to the Liberal Party or she might join another pl- political party into the future and pursue a career. But what was done to her is unforgivable and I'm just using that as an illustration. It could, could happen in any political mm-hmm. party. So if we are going to encourage young people to join we have to make sure it's a safe place and it's a good place and it's a positive experience because we are taking their values their aspirations and their principles and say come join us and that's a big responsibility and I hadn't really thought about it in the way that Dania described it um, until I listened to what she said and I think for me that's that that's a very big responsibility and so political parties have to make sure that we are nurturing and supporting young people yes I agree with you join a political party but we have to make Mm -hmm. sure that that experience is is positive and as good as it can be now that isn't to suggest that everyone's going to become a politician because you know we don't have that many spots but whatever people decide to do in their um in the time that they're a member of the party, we have to make sure it's a positive experience, I think. So it's just been a real joy speaking to you today. I I really, one of the things that I love doing this podcast, one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is just being able to have conversations about just having conversations with another woman yeah. in politics. Yeah. It sounds so simple, but there's not very many opportunities necessarily that we get to sit down for an hour mm. and just talk. So thank you yep. so much for joining me, Sue. Thank you. Um, I really, My really pleasure. appreciated it. Thank you. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wajak people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests 
throwbacks to my time in staffing and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.akenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> next question. <laughs>